hard is coming your way, whether you like it or not, you you might as well be proactive and deliberately choose the discomfort before it hits you. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast. My name is Ron Duran Jr. and I will be your blacksmith as we explore the world of adversity and doing hard things. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Jason Van Camp is a decorated Green Beret who attended and played football at West Point before earning his U.S. Army Ranger tab and Special Forces tab. Jason is a best-selling author and chairman of Mission 6-0. He's also executive director of Warrior Rising, which is a nonprofit that empowers U.S. military and veterans. Jason and I think alike on so many things. It really was a refreshing conversation to riff about doing hard things and why it's important for our well-being and our ability to thrive in the face of adversity. I really do hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. All right, Jason, welcome to The Forge. I appreciate you coming on, taking the time to spend with me and our listeners. Hey, Ron, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. And I'm excited to to be on the show. So let's get it rolling. Let's do yeah, it. Yeah, no kidding. You know, I, we were just talking off the air, Jason, about what a great sync up. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about your book later, but Deliberate Discomfort. Let that sink in, listeners. Deliberate discomfort. Why would we want to do that? So think about that. Jason, I think, has some pretty strong ideas on why we might want to invite discomfort into our lives. And and I think we'll probably be in agreement on a lot of things. But before we get to the book and all that good stuff, Jason, talk a little bit about, you know, I could easily say, hey, Jason, tell me all about your life. But let's just say, tell us a little bit about your military background and and then maybe leading into how did you start up your company and, and why do you do what you do? All great questions. And I tend to be long-winded sometimes. So if you start falling asleep or getting bored or like Jason, all right, let's, let's, let's move this along. Let's wrap this up. I'm a West Point guy, you know, and so when you graduate, you get commissioned as an officer, second lieutenant in the, in the Army. And, and originally was a field artillery officer. So I went to the OBC officer basic course at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And while I was there, there was an opportunity for the brand new second lieutenants to attend a pre-ranger course taught by some field artillery rangers. And at the time, and probably still is the case, there was a large attrition rate of artillery officers that were sent to ranger school. And so I volunteered along with, I think, 100 other guys to go do the pre-ranger course. It was about six months. We started in the summertime. We ended in December. And it was very difficult. You woke up early in the morning. There was a good hour and a half, two-hour PT smoke session every single day. And they were trying to weed out the weak from the strong sort of thing. And there was a lot of running, a lot of running. And so I did that. And at the very end of it, there were 12 people left, 12 out of 100. I was one of the 12. Nine of those guys went to ranger school. And three of those guys graduated. And as much as I hated West Point, and I did not like that experience in any way, I loved Ranger School. And I was lucky because I was true blue all the way through, 61 days. And that was really my first taste of of the military, at least the real military, the thing that I was looking for, searching for, and, and everything. 
And so I guess I learned that I could do hard things, could do, you know, military things and be successful at it. And, and I found a lot of pride from doing that. And so uh, I, I was stationed in Korea for my first duty station and I loved it. And a lot of opportunities were presented, provided to me because of simply because I had a ranger tab on my shoulder, you know, and from there, I went right to Iraq. You know, I was sent to 100% Airborne Division, but they were in Kuwait. And so I, I got over there a little bit late from Korea. And then we were in the initial invasion. And I was attached to an infantry unit that was in northern Iraq and a town called Arabia, which was by the Syrian border. And there wasn't much going on. You know, at the time, the Iraqi army basically gave up and, and, and fled. We didn't get into any skirmishes, although we were sort of looking for a lot of them. And we were running around or driving around with Humvees with their doors off, no, no up armor, nothing like that. It was a different, different battlefield. And I saw a lot of special forces guys, Green Berets over there. And it seemed like, I mean, they were the cool guys, you know, they were doing whatever they wanted. Some of them were growing beards. They just wore civilian clothes. They had mixed match uniforms. You know, some guys that outranked them would talk to them and they would blow them off. And I was like, man, these guys are pretty, pretty damn cool, you know? And I thought to myself, I wonder if I could be a Green Beret. I mean, these guys are pretty, pretty high speed. Like it's tough. I have no idea if I could do it. And a good buddy of mine from West Point, Jesse, who played football together, he convinced me. He's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try out. I want you to come with me. Let's do it together and it'll be fun. And we got each other's backs and all this stuff. And so uh, we submitted our packets and Jesse did not get picked up. So he wasn't selected. I was. And so next thing you know, I'm on a bus going to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, Camp McCall, you know, with all these other, you know, Green Beret hopefuls, you know, and I didn't really know any of them. And then I went through the selection and the qualification course, had an absolute blast, loved every second of it. I really did. And then I was assigned to 10 Special Forces Group in Fort Carson, Colorado. I was given a mountain team there and I deployed twice more to Iraq once to sort of central Iraq, just northeast of Baghdad on the Iranian border, Kurdistan border. That was a very difficult rotation. And then my last deployment was to Nazaria, which is sort of down south. And so those were the three combat rotations in, in Iraq for me. I also served on a JSET to Mali, Africa. And then while I was there, I got really sick came down, unfortunately, with a seizure disorder. And so I started having these tonic-clonic seizures and, you know, biting my tongue and shaking and falling down and hitting my head and giving myself black eyes and losing my memory and all this stuff. And uh, the unit tried to take care of me for, for a while. And then they finally realized, you know, there's not much we can do for you. You can't deploy, you can't shoot, you can't jump out of airplanes, you can't even drive a car. Uh, so why don't we medically retire you? And they medically retired me about 15 years in. And then I asked myself the same question everyone asks when they get out of the military. All veterans ask at some point, now what? You know, what am I going to do with myself? And my mother used to tell me, show me your friends and I'll show you your future, you know, when I was younger. So if you want to be a starter on the football team, hang around starters. If you want to, you know, be successful at, at business, hang around millionaires, you know, that sort of thing. And a lot of my buddies that had left the military 
or they were just, you know, never served in the military and what they were doing with their lives right now, they were, they were startup business owners. I thought, you know what, if they can do it, so can I. And so I started Mission Six Zero. It was a, it was called Mission Essential at the time when I first started. And I brought in all my my buddies, Green Berets and Navy SEALs and Rangers and Marines and Medal of Honor recipients and so forth and friends that I met in my my lifetime, you know, in my career and just just living. And I said, hey guys, I'm gonna get an idea to start a business. It's a leadership business. I don't really see, did, did some market research. Nobody really else was out there. Jocko was not <laughs> Jocko yet, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, they said, yeah, we'll help out. And so I started, I Googled the list of NFL teams because I'm a, I'm a big sports guy. You know, I played football in college and, you know, I've been a Redskins fan my entire life and, you know, all of baseball too and hockey and, you know, everything. And I started cold calling NFL teams just alphabetically. And eventually I got to the New York Jets and every call I made, I learned something. And when I got to the Jets, I, I knew who to speak to. I knew what to say and, and eventually became friends with their the director there that I was supposed to meet with. And he invited me to, to New York. And I was lucky enough to get in front of the head coach and the GM and the staff. And, and I pitched them on what I wanted to do. And I was hired basically on the spot. And so that was my first ever pitch and my first ever client in New York Jets and my first ever attempt at business. And so that's kind of the origin story behind it. And I would say, boom, man. It was, it was a celebratory it, right? event. It was, a, it was a, like me and two other guys. It was fun. And we were, we were definitely high-fiving like a bunch of crazy white guys for, for a few minutes, you know? Wow. That, that's cool. And so what were you pitching to? Was this leadership training? Mm-hmm. Was it part of your mental kind of, maybe I'll use the word mental toughness training. What was, what was it that you were selling to the New York Jets? See, that's the interesting thing is we didn't have a product. We didn't have curriculum. We didn't have anything. All we had was ourselves. And so the idea was like, here we are, here's what we could do for you, bring us in and we could do it. Right. And after we got the contract, then we were like, okay, we got to actually create something now. We have to figure this out. We have to, we have to build it, you know? And so we did sort of like building the airplane as it's taking off, you know, down the runway. And so we do a lot of that in the special forces, you know, like you just have to pivot, you know, and adapt and be flexible and, and all that on the fly. You know, you just have to uh, be good at that or learn to be good yeah. at that. And so that's sort of what we did. And we, what it came down to was we realized there was only certain days that we could work with the team because the NFL Players Association had very, very strict rules and regulations. You know, a player can only be at the facility for a certain amount of time and then outside the facility and like all these things. And so we worked with Woody Johnson, who's the owner of the Jets. He also Johnson and Johnson that, and he offered us his farm, you know, and I think it was Westminster or Bedford, New Jersey. Anyway, one of the two, I don't recall right now. The guy has like a mansion out there and horses and a lake and just everything. And so we brought in our, our full, you know, uh, plethora of assets. I mean, we brought out, helicopters we brought out you know every weapon possible and we developed a curriculum for the first the coaches and got them to buy into what we were doing and then the players and then we eventually worked with them for the entire season 
I, I think that speaks to your ability to pitch. You know, you're coming in and you're saying, hey, you know, you're talking to me, Jason, and you're saying, I, I got something to sell you. I don't have it all figured out, but buy it anyway. So right. wonderful job, you know, getting them to say yes. And then I think that's a good leadership lesson, right? When I work with my younger undergraduates at, at the University of Colorado, a lot of times they get paralyzed by the, not having all the data. And I go, you know how many times in real life we have all the data? Almost never. And you got to get ready to, as you say, figure it out as you go. And so maybe there's a good lesson there for all of us that step into that, I don't know, that uncertainty of, I don't know. We're going to figure it out. I couldn't so. agree more. I couldn't agree more. You know, when I was at the uh, the captain's career course at Fort Benning, Georgia, right? We were all graded on our ability to present an operations order, you know, with confidence and you, you control the room, you own the room and you have all the information and, and everything. And they're very, very hard on each captain there on how they pitch and brief. And there was one guy there that was so good that he didn't even study the operations order. At one point, he took the operations order off of somebody else's desk, went up in front of everybody and pitched that order, having not read it, and just was an absolute rock star and got a passing grade. And I was like, you know what? There's something to be learned there. There's something to be said about that. You know, like he, he put himself voluntarily, intentionally in that position to see if he could do it. You know, he's like, I know if I studied and I did this, I could get a passing grade. That's so easy. I want to see if I can do it without even looking at the op order. And he did it, you know, and I never forgot that, you know. Yeah, I'm smiling. You know, if you're watching this on YouTube, you, you see me smiling. But gosh, you know, I, I see there's so many good things there, right? Stepping into this. say, Let me challenge myself to another level. Let's see if I can pull this off. And I think that's, you know, I talk to, I coach people on speaking and presenting and, and that's what I always say, command the room. You got to have confidence for, for the audience. You're going to lose them. And, you know, even if you're a confident idiot, that's, that's That can be powerful. And so maybe I should have you, Jason, come in and talk to my students about how to do that. Sure. I'd love <laughs> and I think to. you do that with your company, right? Do you do some speaker training as well? Do some do speaker sp training as well? Yeah, we don't do speaker training, but we do a lot of speaking, you know. Okay. So very quickly in the in the lifespan of my organization, we realized that it wasn't just about these veterans. Great stories, you know, Medal of Honor guys. I mean, amazing, amazing stories. But as I saw them pitch, you know, and present their stories, and some better than others, some more intriguing. And, and you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder as well. Some people resonate with certain keynotes or speakers than others and so forth. And, and I get that. But at the end of the presentation, there was always a Q&A. And a lot of the folks would ask very simple questions like, well, how did you do that? And the veteran would say something like, oh, I don't know, I just relied on my training or, you know, I don't know, I just did it, you know, and then going to the next question. And I was like, man, that's a crap answer. You know what I mean? Like somebody was actually interested enough to ask the question and they wanted to know, how did you do that? But the veteran himself didn't know how he did that. They didn't, they weren't able to comprehend it. And I saw a lot of the classic, you know, researchers, experts, psychologists, you know, the PhDs, the, the science, right? And I saw that sort of side of, of mental training and, and so forth. And, and gosh, there's a, you know, Ron, there's a lot of them out there. There's a lot of them out there. 
And I would pay attention to them and I would listen to them and I would see how they were doing with sales. And what I saw was a lot of people that were super passionate about what they did. They weren't the best speakers, you know, they weren't dynamic, you know, they didn't have much in terms of boots on the ground, real life experience, a lot of book, you know, smarts. And when somebody asked them a question about how do you do something, they had a, a theory, you know, and, and, a, and a practical application behind a, a so what and a now what behind every question, right? And so when my veterans got up and spoke, the audience was engaged. They were excited. But the CEO, the decision maker in the back of the room, at the end, he's like, well, shoot, I just, I just paid a ton of money for this. And this is, you know, going to motivate them for a few days, maybe even a couple of weeks. But where, where's the sticky factor? You know, like where's the real stuff here? And then with the science folks, I saw the audience not as engaged, you know, a little bored, but the CEO, the decision maker in the back of the room being like, yes, exactly what I'm talking about. Just listen to this guy, digest it. You know, this is what we're going to need in order to, to, you know, triple our ROI and get more sales. And I thought to myself, you know what, why don't we combine those two things together, the veteran and the scientist. And so that's what we do at Mission Six Zero is we have the practical application, the boots on the ground, the, you know, the real life experience and story. And then we have the, the education behind it, the science behind it. So it's, there's a lot of edutainment at, at mission six zero intentionally. Oh gosh, that, you know, I always like to, I use the word operationalize it. And I think it's right along with what you're saying. So there's so many talented people out there that have a lot of wisdom, but they have no idea how to articulate how they do it. Yeah. What, what Jason, if you were to give us some tips, how do you train people? So I got all this great knowledge maybe I'm a veteran, maybe I'm not a veteran, but I got this great knowledge. I don't really know how to explain what I do. How do we, any tips on how to do that? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I don't want you to anyone to to come across and think that oh you're not you can't be a good speaker unless you're a veteran or you're you know the Medal of Honor recipient or whatever. Anybody can tell a great story. Anybody can tell an amazing life experience. It's just the way that you tell it. So how do you do it? Well, number one, you have to be true to yourself. You know, if you're a guy that's gonna walk around a stage and and get excited, by God, be that guy. You know, don't stand behind a podium and, and read a script, you know, if somebody's telling you to do that. At the same time, if you're a guy that's, you know, not that, you'd rather stand behind a podium and, and read a script, great. If you're a funny guy, use your humor. If you're not, don't try to be funny. You know, if you're more of a, a deep guy who's going to tug at your emotions and be that. So that's the first thing. Be yourself, right? Second is write your story down. And find people that you trust. They can give you true, honest feedback. Not your friends or family members are going to say that you're the best and that was awesome and they're never going to tell you otherwise, right? Find somebody who's going to give you some real feedback and say, yeah, that's that was crap, man. That was boring. I didn't understand it. You know, and it might hurt your feelings for a little bit, but guess what? You're getting better. You know, you're getting, getting real feedback from these folks. Don't just ask one or two people. Get a, a few people, three or four people. They can give you different opinions on, on your presentation. And then next is you rehearse. You rehearse so much that you don't have to look down at your notes. You know, you don't have to look down at some paper that you wrote down because I promise you, when you're looking at your audience, you know, and you're speaking to them, the first time you look down at your notes is the first opportunity you give them to disengage. 
They're like, okay, mm. he's not engaged with me. I'm not going to, I'm looking down at my cell phone. I'm doing something else. So if you can keep that momentum going, you know, by looking at them and telling them, speaking from your heart, t- talking about what you know, you're going to keep their attention. The next is teach his own as far as the length. We live in an ADD world. You know what I mean? If you were back in the 1920s, you could probably stay on a topic for 20 minutes and somebody would be completely engaged. But right now, you know, you got to give somebody like 45 seconds on a topic and then you got to move on to something else. You know, that's just- That makes me sad, Jason. You know, and you could be talking about the same subject, but you have to say something different about it, right? Because a lot of times, you know, you're just observing the audience. Like, okay, got it. That's interesting. I don't want you to say the same thing again or say the same thing in a different way. Like move on to the next, to the next subject. I think you do well when you start speaking. So your opening has to be powerful because people are judging you. Like, who's this guy? If you can nail it in the first three minutes or so, like people are going to say, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. And then the very end also needs to wrap it all up and be powerful as well. So you leave on a good note. So I think if you can combine all those things together, you have the makings of a pretty good presentation. Oh, I like that. I, I might snip that out and let my undergraduate students listen to that. You know, I always tell them, keep your eyes on the audience, engage with them. And I like, I might steal that from you that when you look down at whatever it is, if you're looking at your slides or looking at your notes, that's an opportunity for them to disengage with you and you don't want to lose them. I like that. I like that a lot. You know, one of the things I was thinking of is, you know, these people that, that have this wisdom, they don't know how to articulate it. I like to always say, let's start with reflection. All right, sit down and, and jot down some notes of how would you explain this to somebody that doesn't know anything about it? And I think a lot of people that are really good at what they do don't spend the time in reflection to think about what that what that would look like. And then once they do, they usually find out they have a lot to tap into. But I, I think that's a skill that, that can be learned. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you need some help doing it too. A lot of the veterans, you know, will start talking and then they'll use a bunch of acronyms or a bunch of units or a bunch of locations. And so if you're a veteran too, you're like, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm, I'm listening, I'm tracking, I understand what you're saying. But if you're a civilian and you don't have any experience, you're like, hey, dude, you have to translate this for me. I have no idea what he's talking about, you know? And you have to be cognizant of that. You have to be aware of that too. And it's not just for the veteran community. It could be any community where you have jargon or, you know, slang or, or whatever, you have to make sure that you're speaking to the lowest common, the lowest ranking person or the dumbest person in the room. You know, that's who you're speaking to, right? Yeah. Explain it to your grandma. Yeah, right? exactly. Uh, exactly. Know your audience, all those good things. Is that, do you think that speaking, I mean, we just spent, I don't know, five minutes talking about to be able to speak well. I think we would both agree that's important. Is that, is that something, do leaders need to be able to speak well in your mind, Jason? Yes. However, this is what I would say. Everybody has their own strengths. If you're okay at speaking, be great at speaking. If you're great at speaking, be outstanding at speaking. If you're terrible at speaking, you know, work on it, but find somebody who is good at speaking to speak as your proxy for you. You know, there's always going to be somebody, your right-hand man, your sergeant major, your team sergeant, whatever, whoever that person is, that if you're not confident, have that person speak for you. Like in the military, there's a lot of things that we're graded on. And as an officer, you're not expected to be the best at everything. Meaning we go out for PT, physical training, right? Um, 
sometimes you kind of feel like you need to be the best runner in in your on your team and your squad, your platoon, your your you know company, battalion, whatever. Well, guess what? There's probably you know five or six other guys, even if you're really good, that will just smoke you on the run, and that's okay. You know, you're doing the best you can. You know, and, and you're and you're pretty good at it and you're, and you're getting better at it. But if we ever had to select somebody to be our runner, it wouldn't be me, you know? <laughs> and the same thing with speaking, like do the, do the best you can improve upon it. But you know, if the situation calls for somebody to speak and it needs to be professional and, and you don't feel like you're up for the task, get the person who is up for the task to, to jump up and do it, you know, and then just give that individual all of the, the faith and confidence and the skills and the equipment and, that they that they need to succeed. Yeah. I like that message. You know, I like the fact that you say it's okay. I see a lot of people try to be good at everything. And I say, is number one, is that can you be good at everything? I mean, we all have strengths and weaknesses. And, and then I followed up with, is that the best use of your energy to try to be good at everything? Why don't you just pick a, a few things and be really good at those? And hopefully those are your strengths. And so I think maybe good messaging there is find your strengths and make those, you know, maybe super strengths. Uh, let's, just, let's, let's get into your book and, and really the idea behind your book, deliberate discomfort. Talk to me, why did you write that book? And, and, and I'm, I'm assuming it's going to really kind of lead into not only why did you write it, but what is the benefit we can get from deliberate discomfort? So I appreciate that. When I was getting my MBA, my, one of my professors, one of my favorite professors, he was sort of surprised that I was going the entrepreneurship route. He's like, we'll get you a high paying job over here. Don't worry about that. He's like, you want to start a leadership company? Come on, man. You know, he was like kind of teasing me, but at the same time, very, very supportive. And one thing he, he said that stuck out to me, and this was at the very beginning of creating this organization. He said, Jason, I've never heard of any company succeeding in this space without first having material, without first having a book. Like, do you have a book? And I was like, no. He's like, well, you're going to write one? I'm like, nah, I'm a green beret. I'm a quiet professional. We don't do that. We don't talk about ourselves. Seals like, do that. Yeah. Seals do that. Right. Yeah. And all love for the seal community because I've got a lot of friends that are seals, you know, but <laughs> those guys love to stick their trident on the cover of books, man. There's no doubt about it. And that's fine. It's Okay. Cause they make a lot of money doing that. And, and it stuck with me. And I started my company. I realized, Hey, you know, I need to market this. I can't be afraid of marketing this. You know, you hear the term FOMO fear of missing out. You know, there's a term that I, I create called faux po fear of putting yourself out there, you know, fear of posting online, fear of other people's opinions. You know, all this is faux po. And I was like, it's just fear. I'm afraid. I'm afraid what other people are going to think about me. I'm afraid of, you know, embarrassing myself. Like who gives a shit? You know what I mean? Like, let's do this. And so we started marketing and I started writing for Inc. Magazine. And one of the articles that I wrote that got more traction than any other article was something that had to do with getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And I was like, wow, there's something here. People are really interested in this topic and this theme. And I am as well. I wonder if we transformed our entire curriculum around this idea of getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And so we did, we, we created the whole curriculum around that because it made sense. And 
thinking about writing this material, writing a book, I thought to myself, well, it's going to be about getting comfortable being uncomfortable. What could the title be? And man, it took me so long to, to this title, that title. It's it's hard to come like, you're like, nah, that's not quite it. That's not good enough. And eh, it's okay. And then finally I landed on deliberate discomfort and it took me maybe five minutes before I said, I love it. Like that's, that's the one. And I did send it out to the publisher and a few other people that did not like it. I was like, I don't care. That's the title. You know what I mean? That's a badass title. I'm telling you. And I think it is. And I still think it is. And a lot of people love it. And it's interesting. You know, it's just short, concise. It perfectly articulates what we're trying to say. And then I said, all right, well, we have all these amazing people on the team, vets and scientists. we got to tell their story, you know? And so um, I wanted to write it in a unique way, meaning we have the story, you know, me, just on my Green Beret, going to my unit for the first time, meeting my company commander and my company commander saying, hey, listen, we're going to combat, Jason. But before I give you command of a team, you know, which is very serious, you know, these are some people that I, I need you to speak with. Because I want you to emulate them. I want you to learn from them. I want you to be like them. These are the, these are the people that are the backbone of the organization. And once you talk to all these individuals, come back and talk to me about what you learn. Okay. So each chapter is me talking to a different person about who they are, their values and experience that they had in combat or, or otherwise just powerful stories and experiences and the second part of each chapter is a scientist on my team breaking down that story into relatable and digestible action items saying, hey, hey, here's the so what and the now what behind what this story was about. Here's the theory behind it. And then the third section is basically a business section which says, hey, this is me. First section, you know, getting as a young Jason Van Camp, young leader learning this is the science behind it. And now the third section is this is the business, meaning Mission Six Zero has worked with certain individuals and certain clients where we've applied this, this lesson, this theme, and this is that lesson. You know, this is what we learned, both good and bad. And I've never seen a book written that way before, and I wanted it to be unique. And so I, I wrote it in that way. And I think it's for everybody because some people were like, I just want to hear the story. Okay, great. Just listen. Just, and some people were like, you know what? I, I really want it, the science behind it. That's what drives me. I'm most, I don't care about the story. I want to know the science behind it. Okay, awesome. And then some people say like, all right, great story, bro. You know, cool story, bro. Or the science, ah, I just glossed it over. Didn't understand it. I want to know how you use this to improve a company. Well, here it is. You know what I mean? And so it's for everybody. And I think if you read it all the way through, you're going to get something out of it. Some folks will say, like, we've, heard, we've got some negative feedback, like, oh, this is a leadership book. Well, no, no crap, it's a leadership book. What did you think it was? You know what I mean? Like, did you come into this not thinking it's right on the cover? It's a leadership book. You know, or some people say, I, I didn't like the science. Okay, fine. Did you like the other parts of it? You know? <laughs> Oh, this is a bunch of MBA bros trying to whatever. Like, did you read chapter five with Joe Cerna and he's drowned in a RG31? Is this really a story about some MBA bros? Like, come on. And everybody in the book is is not beating their chest. They're not beating their chest and saying how awesome they are. They're talking about their failures and how they learn from it. And so that's what the book is about. And, and I wrote it because we need a curriculum. This is something I'm passionate about. It's It's about me. You know, and, and the guys on my team, the people I care about, my friends, my teammates, 
you know, and most important of all, it's we're, we're helping people. You know, this is something that every second lieutenant should read. You know, because it teaches you just basic fundamental principles that you're going to experience. You're going to, to walk into your, your, your boss's office, you know, and he's going to say these things to you and you're going to want to be prepared, you know, and you're going to want to know before you walk in there what to expect and how to lead, you know, and, and this book, Deliberate Discomfort, lays the groundwork, teaches you the basics of how, uh, how to do that. Now, the book is essentially the first in a trilogy. I've got two more books to go. The second book is, is me going to combat. And then the third book is me coming back from combat. So there's very unique challenges in combat. Leadership is different in combat, in the moment, in chaos. And then leadership is very different when you get back from combat and having to deal with all that stuff. And so I'm writing book number two right now. Struggling to to come up with a title, close on a few things. Once I get that title, we're off and running. Outstanding. And so I would say, what about me? What about me, Jason? Is this book good for me? I'm not a second lieutenant. Is this, I, I think you would say, this is there's value here for all of us. And I would also add to that, do we have to be extreme? Do we have to be like, you know, the special forces kind of guys or gals to get some value out of this? That's a great question. And and that's where we, we, we get a lot of pushback from that. People saying, well, I'm not special forces, you know, so this isn't for me. Well, this book wasn't written just for special forces. People it was written for anybody, anybody that wants to get better in their life. Anybody that wants to be a leader in some capacity. And also the intensity level. That's the interesting thing about deliberate discomfort is that you get to choose your level of discomfort because what's hard for me might not be hard for you and vice versa. I'll give you a couple examples. You hear the term, hey, make your bed first thing in the morning. Okay, that's great advice. You know, you do something hard every morning. I went to West Point. We had to make our bed every single morning for four years. We had to make our bed so tight. You know, they say that you have to bounce a quarter off of it. You know, and then as a freshman, there were times when, when we slept underneath our bed because we didn't want to make our bed in the morning. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so for me right now, making making a bed, especially first thing in the morning, is just sort of a natural human response. It's, it's something automatic. It's not very difficult for me. But I can appreciate it how it's hard for somebody else. Um, I served a mission for my church to Russia. And while I was in Russia, they shut off the hot water in the springtime, early springtime, and then they turn it back on again in October. So your spring and summer, you have no hot water. You have to take a cold shower. And some people would tell you, take a cold shower every day. You know, that's doing something hard. And I can appreciate that. And I know that's hard for some people, but for me, like I got used to that, you know, like taking a cold shower is, is not difficult for me. I'll give you another example, running an Ironman. You know, an Ironman is a 2.4-mile swim followed immediately by a 112-mile bike ride followed immediately by a 26.2-mile run. That's very difficult for me. You know, I've only done a half Ironman. So if somebody were to say, Jason, I need you to run this Ironman, you know, I'd have to train for it, you know, and, and I'd have to prepare and, and everything. However, there's a friend of mine who lives in Utah not far from me. His nickname is the Iron Cowboy. His name is James Lawrence, and he's a good friend of mine. And we've done speaking engagements together. And my man did 50 Ironman races 
in 50 consecutive days in all 50 states. And then two years ago, he followed that up by doing 100 Ironman races in Utah. And I did a couple of a couple of the runs with him, a couple of the marathons with him. And for him, you know, like you were, you were just to say, James, hey, run an Ironman today. Hey, no problem. I, I'm doing it anyway. No piece of cake for him, <laughs> you know? So the point I'm saying is what, what's my heart is not your heart, you know? And so that's the whole message of deliberate discomfort. Find out your hard and then do it. It's sort of like going to the gym and putting and doing doing some weight training. And let's say you're on the bench, right? And um, I I do reps with 300 over 300 pounds. That's where I'm at right now. And in the past, I used to do reps with honestly 395 at, at one point in my life. But I'm not going to have you go in there, Ron, and put 350 on on the bench and say, "All right, dude, we're going to do 10 sets, you know, five reps each." And you're like, Jason, that's, I can't, I can't do that. You know what I mean? And you're just saying, this is more my speed and my weight. And if you put on two tens, I'm going to say, Ron, that's too light for you, man. Like, let's find something that it's hard, but doable for you. And that's how we should live our life. We should find out what's hard, but doable for us. And then continue to push the envelope so we can get better at it. All right, Jason, this is the, this is the the pushback. I, I, I agree with you completely. Yeah, uh, this is the pushback. And so how would you answer this objection? Somebody says, Jason, life's already hard enough. Why would I want, why would I want to make it harder? Why do these hard things? What is the value I'm going to get out of, out of going out there and, and doing hard things? It's a good question. I'll, I'll, I'll respond this way with a story first. So my family, we were converts to our church and in our church, the members would stand up and speak from time to time. And one Sunday, my family were in the back and I was young. And one young man got up and started speaking and he was leaving for his mission, you know, in a couple of weeks, he was going somewhere in South America. And he gave his, his talk, his presentation. He talked about what he's learned in his life, and how excited he is and so forth. And, and the energy in the room was really, really good. You can feel like this is a good talk and, he told a lot of stories, which was awesome. And he kept it pretty short, which was awesome. You know, and he sat down and I felt like the audience would have clapped or applauded if, if they were allowed to in church, but everyone keeps it reverent. And I remember I leaned over to my mom, you know, and I was young, I think it was around nine, 10 years old. I said, that was pretty good. You know, and she looked at me, kind of gave me that sideways mom look, that glance, that intimidating, piercing, you know, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I can't make, I can't do the look, but we all well, know I think all, all, all moms can do it, right? You know, you, you got it. And she said, that young man's in for a rude awakening. And, uh, and I said, why? You know, and then the young man during his talk, he, he said something along the lines of, life is pretty easy. All you have to do is read your scriptures and pray and obey the Lord and you're good to go. And my mom said, life is not easy. Life is hard. And if it's not hard, you're not living life the right way. And at the time, I didn't really comprehend it because I was so young, but I remember that lesson is all the lessons my mom gave me. And my mom at the time was dealing with, you know, terminal lung cancer. And she died, you know, not long after that. And I thought about that in my life. And I said, you know what, that, that's so true. You know, you shouldn't be looking for comfort, you know, because as soon as you get to that plateau, you need to be looking for the next thing. 
whatever that is, that next challenge, that next adventure, that next attempt, you know, as soon as you start to feel comfortable and you're like, why would I do anything else? That's when you start to atrophy. That's when you start to get worse. There was a locker room in our locker room and playing college football. There was a sign that said, every day you get better, you get worse. You never stay the same. And that's a true, true statement. You know, I, I used to speak fluent Russian. I lived in Russia. I don't speak fluent any longer, you know, because I don't use it anymore. Right. And I feel regret because of that. You know, I, I feel like give me a few months, I could probably get back to that level. But same thing with, with running, you know, like you go for a run, you're in great shape. You stop running, you get fat, you get out of shape and, and even running the, the shortest distance is difficult for you. So it's your choice. You know, you, you can decide to not do anything and live in comfort or you can live a life of deliberate discomfort where you're constantly trying to improve yourself. Because here's the thing that I promise you, life is hard, right? And hard is coming your way, whether you like it or not. You know, you might as well be proactive and deliberately choose the discomfort before it hits you. Perfectly said. Perfectly said. Love it. Love it. Great message. How do you, I know that you do like a deliberate discomfort challenge with a lot of your, your, I don't know if they're clients or what is that? I've been seeing it on LinkedIn and and I'm not really sure what it is, but tell us a little bit more about that. How do you work with people to do hard things? Yeah, man. So it's free. That's the one thing that's really cool about it. It's a free service we offer. It's called the Deliberate Discomfort Challenge. Usually in the past, we've charged $297 for it. It's a 60-day challenge. And actually today is day 60 for the first class. I'm in the first class. This is the fourth time I've done it. So this is the last day of the challenge. So how it works is no excuses, no mercy. Every day you report to me, right? Um, We have six domains, mental, physical, spiritual, social, emotional, professional. So mental, you have to read a book from start to finish, Monday to Sunday night. We give you the first book. It's Deliberate Discomfort. You get to choose each week's book for you. You can also do an audio book. Physical, we give you a workout. It's a gym-based workout. It's about 45-minute, 60-minute workout. Very difficult. But you turn up or down the intensity. You know, you control the weights. You control all that. We give you a cardio-based workout every day. So a run, a sprint, a ruck, or a hike. And Saturday, we have a third workout. It's a Valor workout where we honor a fallen military veteran with a workout. And then we have a nutrition plan that we send you. And if you're interested, we can upgrade that to meals delivered to your door. Spiritual, we have a mindfulness practice. So every day we do breathing with uh, Navy SEAL Commander John McCaskill. Social, we have a mandate to reach out to a family member, a friend, a past friend, somebody you've had a falling out with and reconnect and have a meaningful conversation with that person. Emotionally, we have a gratitude journal. You can turn that into a regret journal if you like. And then professionally, we have a master class. And so 66 videos professionally done with me, my veterans, my scientists. We talk about each theme and chapter in the book. Each class is, each video is between five and 20 minutes long. So you do all of that every single day for 60 days. And then you post something every day on your social media platform of your choice about what impacted you during the challenge. And if you do that effectively for 60 days, you can call yourself an official Deliver Discomfort Challenge graduate. And again, it's free. It's a free service. We start the first Monday of every month. And so if anybody's interested in that, go to 
discomfort, or I'm sorry, challenge.deliberdiscomfort.com. Go there or mission60.com to learn more. Awesome. And I'll, I'll post that in the show notes. That's, that's intriguing to me. You know, there's, there's a lot of them out there, right? Hard. What is it? 75 hard. Or I know David Goggins does some, some challenges as well. I, I like the sound of this. I like the whole, the idea of the holistic, you know, kind of approach to, to this. It's not just physical. There's, there's a lot of elements there. So I appreciate that. Jason, I know, um, we could keep going with this, but let's start to wrap this up. Uh, and, and maybe you just kind of segued into this. How, how can people work with you? You know, of course, everybody's saying Jason is a, this is a cool dude. I want to work with him. How do, how do I go about doing that outside of the challenge that you just shared? What else can we, we do with you and how do we find you? I appreciate that. You know, and I like how you said that I, I aspire to be a good dude. I want people to say, Oh yeah, yeah, Jason. I know that guy's a good dude. You know, I, I want to be authentic and real and legit. So here's some, some things you people could do to, to, to help out one on the mission six zero side, you can buy deliberate discomfort. Usually people buy it on Amazon. It's highly rated and we have 551 ratings, 87% of which are five star, which is, which is pretty great. You can get the audio book as well. I read the audio book. So I, I, you can hear my voice my first time doing it. So be kind when you listen to it. If you want to put it on <laughs> 1.5 speed or whatever, then, you know, that's okay too. We have, if anybody's looking for keynotes, not just me, you know, I keynote, but we have many people on the team that also do that. So uh, Navy SEALs and Green Berets and Marines and amputees, Wind Warriors and Medal of Honor guys. So if you're interested in that, we can set that up. We do workshops with corporations as well. Usually 12 weeks, we talk about a chapter um, in the book, which 12 chapters in the book. So 12 weeks, each each week is a different chapter. And we have homework and we'll give you access to a, a lot of different things. And you actually get certified when you finish our course. We have the Deliberate Discomfort Challenge. You know, that's a free service, 60 days, very difficult. I'd love to invite anybody who's interested to do that. That's a holistic workout. And, uh, and it's difficult, you know, and, and teach his own. Some people find the, the, the physical part, the most difficult. Some people find the, the social part, reaching out to somebody, the most difficult having those conversations. So to each his own, I also have a nonprofit called warrior rising. We help veterans start or accelerate their own businesses. So we help them find purpose again through that. And you can go to warriorrising.org to find out more. We're looking for coaches. We're looking for people to volunteer. And obviously we're looking for any type of donation. You know, so if you're looking to get rid of some money for tax purposes and you want to help veterans, here's an opportunity to do so. And so um, those are the ways you can help. Challenge.deliberdiscover.com, mission60.com, or warriorrising.org. There's a lot going on, and I appreciate that you say that. You know, I, like the, I like the way you word that. How can you help? Because I think at the end of the day, that should be what we're trying to do, right? Make it to make the world a little better place. So I appreciate what you're doing, Jason. Let's get to our last signature question. And and I feel like you're probably going to have an answer for this. What is your greatest failure, Jason? And what did you learn from it? Yes, sir. Well, you've heard the, I don't know if you've heard this term or not, but I heard this a while back and it just stuck with me. Sometimes you win and sometimes you learn, you know, and there's great learning in losing you know, and failing, you know, that's where you get your experience. And and that's, there's a power in regret. Just read the book, The Power of Regret, you know, and it, and it says that 
if it wasn't for regret, you wouldn't have that fuel, that fortitude fuel to keep going, to move forward, to improve yourself, to not be embarrassed any longer. And for me, you know, it feels like my whole life is a series of failures in a lot of ways, you know, series of, of lessons learned, you know, growing up, I think I was only on one championship team on, on, on any sport, on any level, you know, and at West Point, you know, that to me was my biggest failure. Like I, I went in there as a young 18 year old kid, completely unprepared, didn't know what to expect. I thought I'd just figure it out as I went there and everybody would love me because I'm physically fit and I, I dominate physically. But what I found out was, was not the case. And I wasn't prepared socially to succeed there. And it was just difficult all around academically, militarily, you know, physically with football, you know, it was, it was a tough, tough deal. And I became a lot stronger because of it. But looking back at that 18 year old kid, man, I just feel sorry for him. I'm like, man, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. And you're going to be, you know, swimming in the deep end with, with sharks, you know, and, and that was a tough, tough deal. It's always looking back at that experience with, with deep regret and anger, you know, but I have to learn to be self-compassionate, you know, and to forgive myself for, for the mistakes made there, you know, my, my team time, meaning my time in the special forces as a, as a team leader, as an officer, um, there was no doubt that we worked hard and we did the best we could, you know, but there were situations where we lost some guys, you know, and that weighs heavy on my soul, especially as a leader where on day one, you, you learn this, everything you do or fail to do, everything the team does or fails to do is your responsibility as a leader. You know, even if you weren't there, it's your responsibility. You should, you should have trained them harder, that sort of thing. So there were a lot of things that happened in my team that I am responsible for. And that's, and, and we lost some guys, you know? And, and so for me, that's something that if you were to say, you can redo your life and take back anything, that's the first thing I would do. I would get those lives back, you know? But again, what can you do other than move forward and learn from it and be better and use that to, to be a better person and help people, you know? And so that's what I'm doing. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.